I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed on mats. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. So I was asked recently, and by recently I mean within the last couple of weeks, about what my worldview was. It was kind of unusual because someone doesn't usually put that question to you directly. I know, I was trying to figure out or imagine who would ask you that question, but that's not really the point, is it? Yeah, it wasn't the point exactly. Uh, The point was that, unfortunately, in that case, I kind of rambled on saying that I was an ontological and moral realist, specifically like an intersubjectivist emergent ontological realist. The problem with that answer is that that isn't actually a worldview that when I was asked about a worldview, what I defaulted to was a bunch of mechanisms through which I kind of thought my worldview functioned or by which it engaged and interacted. I think the problem with that answer is that no one outside of a philosophy class would understand it. Yeah. It was sort of like being asked, you know, what's your your view of a family and explaining kind of biological reproduction. Hmm. You don't actually give a picture of what is a family for, and you don't, you know, you don't actually tell a story about what the unit that is a family is meant to do into the world. Mm-hmm. So it brought us very quickly to this podcast, and what this podcast is uh, was wanting to revisit the thing that is the worldview of. Jesus. Boom. Kind of, if we're accepting a life of discipleship, we sort of need to understand what he thinks the world is, how he thinks it functions, where we are. Like, there's this basic orientation that we have to keep returning to. We're constantly losing it. And by the way, when I say the worldview of Jesus and like where we are, what we're talking about is the gospel which is the work of Christ inside the story of God. So to be oriented to the power of God for salvation, you have to know the story. Doesn't some part of you sort of die when you're like, I don't know. I feel like historically people had told me, we're going to have a conversation about the gospel and the story of God. I'd be like, is it Sunday? Yeah. Is it Sunday? Are you going to wear a suit? (laughs) Which part of the Bible are you going to open and exegize out of? Yeah, but the, some of your motivation here is that we have lots of other conversations within a context on leadership, on hunting, on health, uh, thinking about the, the ones we're, conversations we're about to have. And then you've had a moment recently where you kind of go, oh, it's worth revisiting the context again. Absolutely. As we're going to reference Dallas Willard quite a bit in this podcast, but he points out that Familiarity gives way to perceived familiarity, which is in fact unfamiliarity, and then boredom, then in fact disinterest and contempt. Does that sound like anybody else's cycle of Sunday mornings? 
right? Deuteronomy 4, that classic verse, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart and your whole mind. What I love about that is that at the beginning of that passage, they've been rehearsing the story. And the story is the thing through which the nature of God becomes visible. And they've been saying, remember how we were taken captive and we called out to him and he came and he demonstrated his power in these ways. And not just his power, he demonstrated his nature, what his personality was like. And then Jesus says, don't let these things fade from your heart. Maybe one of the more beautiful expressions of don't forget this, because it's more than don't forget this. It's don't let this fade from you. Mm. And then it goes, but you will, and you're going to be taken into exile as a consequence of that. You will lose the intimacy that you have with me because you are going to forget who I am, and there will be consequences of that in your life. Your life will be worse for that. And then he goes, but after that happens, you'll remember, and you can find me again when you seek me. Mm. So that's kind of what we're doing here is going... On a very regular basis, it's kind of a practice of reorienting ourselves to the story, kind of raising a hand and going, do we have familiarity or do we have perceived familiarity? Do, do we have a general awareness of who we are and what's going on? So a worldview. The German, which everyone should know because they really moved this issue down the field in a reaction against British empiricism is uh, Weltanschauung. It's probably mispronounced. It's just the story that makes sense of reality. And the reason that a story matters, here's a piece of perceived familiarity. I love asking people that love story, what's your definition of a story? Like, what, what do you mean? What Stop. Because if you're talking about some verbal transmission of events, that's, that could be anything. Like Flannery O'Connor defines a story as a dramatic event with the action constrained through characters and characters revealed through action. But there's sort of a simple one of competent agents facing a conflict. And what that conflict usually is is the contrast between who they are and who they are going to have to be in order to keep going. The fact that this is true, that what story is, is this contrast in our becoming is represented in every superhero movie ever by the leveling up montage by Tony Stark making a new set of armor. And we love that moment of Thor building a new hammer. I'm only going to mention Marvel movies because it's the moment where you go, oh, here's the solution. Here is the transformation necessary to continue in this dynamic, demanding world. What's our story? What is the story Jesus believed oriented the world. Uh, those of you in the Ransom Tart universe know this is referred to as the larger story, but we're going to run at it from a different tack. We're going to talk about the gospel, but in sort of the most hopefully color commentary, make things fresh by saying them exactly the way they are again. Let's do it. We start with creation. Yeah, sorry, Dad, if you're listening. Functionally, because God is already on the scene, we know that there must be some being who precedes existence, which is this big loophole for philosophers. Uh, but God is there, 
And this act of creation starts happening. This is what's really interesting. We're just used to all of this. We're used to everything in the Judeo-Christian, as in like the Jewish being stewards of the story and it transitioning into the Christ-like people, followers of Jesus over time. But we just go, yep, God, a good God created. And you go, oh, dear Lord, this story is so weird uh, in contrast with its contemporary narratives. And we talked about recently Kronos, Kairos, Orfeo, Uranus, like the slaying of the sky by Kronos. Creation narratives almost always begin with this act of violence. If you just look at a map, pin your eyes on the little area by the Mediterranean Sea where the deserts, where the Hebrews are wandering and just kind of track right a little bit, Babylon, and you go, what did they think happened? Well, we actually have basically their entire intact creation myth, and it's so crazy, and it's like, okay, so there were these multiple deities intermingling, and then they began producing a hierarchy of lesser deities. Eventually, there was a war. Lesser deities killed greater deities and made man out of the blood and set up somebody to kind of arbitrarily rule. For the scholars of ancient Babylon, you'll notice this is actually a very good summary. <laughs> is this Gilgamesh? Uh, Gilgamesh would have come out of this worldview, yes. Okay. But it's like you have violence and you have accident. And kind of look most places, and there's like some version of this, like there's concentric rings of deities in conflict with one another emanating from a central hub. Then there's a moment of violence. That's very much how the Greeks roll very much how the ancient Egyptians roll. And People are probably familiar with p- the word pantheon. You have like these, this is why you referred back to our podcast we did on the language earlier because of all of like the Titans and the gods and very similar patterns of sort of us and them and wars and slang and overthrowing. Right, exactly. That is the template. And then you have this one that says, okay, a powerful God whose nature we don't know yet, okay? His nature is being revealed to the story. So this entity who precedes anything starts making on purpose and with pleasure. These things are so unique that they're completely fascinating, not only because in the beginning, in sort of a masculinist world, you have the attribution of feminine attributes to God as well, of this creativity coinciding with delight that in its context would have been associated with like women more than with the expression of power that you would see associated with men. Very, very rare. Uh, But you have this weird thing happening where you have a unique God doing something that actually says, "Uh, no, the world isn't born out of a contest. It's born on purpose uh, by someone who is also enjoying it. And, you know, we have all the other things surrounding that around language and what humans end up being, blah, blah, blah. World gets set into motion. Then you have sort of the rest of the introduction of humans a little bit. What we know right about them is that they're built for dominion. Very interesting and tricky when you just go right away. We have the establishment of a community of people who share the quality of ruling. So who are very much built to live alongside this God whose communion is creating a larger and larger communion. I can Mm -hmm. already feel you guys falling asleep. Stay with me. Well, what's interesting about that too, Blaine, is that it's in contrast once again to the way that human beings interact in almost every other story about creation and attainment of things. 
is that you have this creation story in the Judeo-Christian model of relationship and intended ruling, which is, in, again, contrast to just go open up the Moana soundtrack, you guys, and play You're Welcome. That actually is a pretty good rundown on how many different traditions talk about how we got fire, how we got free will, how we got these abilities to like take control over the planet. They're all like sort of stealing, violent, sneaky, wasn't supposed to be this way, but we got fire from the gods type thing. And so that we've got, again, not only a God that's intentionally and joyfully creating, but then intentionally inviting human beings to be a part of it. Yeah. I mean, we have this incredible indication of the nature of this being. Then we have this incredible expression of human beings and what they're for. And you have the introduction of Eve. Em and I were talking about it. And it's kind of like, I was like, yeah. And then Eve shows up and then Adam sits up just and is totally aroused. My wife shuts you down when you are talking, laughing about the liaisons in the garden. But she goes like, uh, he doesn't wake up and make some move. He wakes up and writes a song, specifically a poem. You go, that is also very unique and beautiful to the introduction of human actors and the description of what they're for. Events go forward. Where I really want to pick up, because what I think it becomes interesting to me, um, oh yeah, the fall happens. We all know that envy, distrust of the heart of God, and we, we understand that there is intentional rebellion distrusting God's heart, out of which uh, human beings become the kinds of things who understand that they themselves cannot live in the presence of God and everything becomes hiding. God comes back in and just goes, okay, yes, severe consequences. What have you done? The kindness of God. I want to move forward to Abram because following creation, following the fall, following this true state of the state of nature now being turmoil. I want to look at the introduction of this. You have desert people in conflict. A lot of time has gone by. Sort of the conveyance and these genealogies. Yes, we need to know who everyone is. We also have this sense of, wow, okay, so blah, 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 who? And then we have this long line of people. And then we're introduced to this certifiably random desert wanderer in the form of Abram, who we all know so much about that if we could just wipe the slate and look at him again the first time, I think we would go, what? The first thing that we know about this guy is that he has a brother who then dies. He's close with his nephew and that he's a total coward and that he's rich and that he maintains a company of elite fighting men sort of in order. And we go, okay, Somehow, God is going to manage to stay in communion with creation and with human beings who are built to exercise dominion specifically. And the way that he's going to do that is he's going to build a relationship that's going to be the safeguard of the story and uh, the safeguard for understanding the character and nature of God through friendships with particular people and promises about their kids. Abram comes on it's like somebody's name is starts with the t he's his son i just love it like you look at it and you go wow this guy moves around a lot first of all 
it would be incredibly obvious to any nomadic reader that, yes, he moves because he's a tribes person. The pressures facing tribes people are famine and being killed. So we have this tiny settlement of people dodging around the ancient desert in a very real way, trying to stay alive. And we know that the issue is staying alive because there's a famine. He goes to Egypt, gives his wife to sleep with Pharaoh. That's where we learn he's a coward. Pharaoh finds out in a dream, is super mad, sends Abram away. Abram is super rich. His nephew Lot is also very rich. Kind of an interesting detail that gets put into the story. They separate. Lot goes out to the cities of the plain. These armies come through destroy the cities, capture Lot, somebody comes and tells Abram. And then we know what's coming, hopefully. And we know that sort of in order, Lot's going to be captured, Abram's going to go after him, he's going to win, he's going to come back, Melchizedek's going to be there, he's going to give one-tenth of his something to Melchizedek. We're going to treat that as the tithe later on. But go back. It's such an important detail that we're given the number and the quality of the fighting force that Abram maintains inside his tribe. I think it's 318. And the word is like trained. And it sort of the the meaning is like, yeah, literally trained, tested, experienced. We obsess over the 300 Spartans. Here's like a prototypical version of that. And we have this these 300 guys inside Abram's tribe who then go and at night do the attack this sleeping army, kill a bunch of people, take all the treasure take the captives back, save Lot. Incredible story. Round about this time, God enters the story in relationship with Abram. And what's super key to hold on to in this mythopoesis is how little at this point in the story people know about what God, the triune God, is up to in creation. We assume, looking at Abram, who becomes Abraham, we call him Abraham from this point forward, we assume that he knows exactly who he has a relationship with. He's like, oh yeah, Abraham knew, this is God most high, because he calls him El Elyon, and you, just, you have to hit the pause button and go, actually, so he's sort of in Canaan, and he's surrounded by these competing deities, warring for sovereignty on the earth, and he has what I would call a hunch and a response in confidence to this God. But there's evidence, very compelling evidence in the story of Abraham that he has a limited understanding of who this being is and thinks that at first the triune God is who's speaking to him is in fact just some minor Canaanite deity with whom he can establish a relationship. And this thing, by the way, of a present and interventionist spiritual world that Abraham occupies. This is everywhere. This is like one of the anxieties of human beings, which we touched on in C.S. Lewis, is our understanding that there's the numinous and moral law, and that in the form of the numinous, there are like powers, forces present in the world, and a lot of our concern is our standing with them. If you sort of look at everything from Comanche spirituality to Shinto in Japan, they both understand that spiritual power invests the world. And the issue is how do you establish an advantageous relationship for your survival? Because you know this power is here. Abraham, same concern. Lucky him. 
the god of the universe is actually starting a relationship with him. But this stays the secret on the earth. Not to put yourself in this position, but imagine imagine that you are an ancient principality, just for fun. No, thanks. Okay. So I agree you should not imagine that, but you can sort of complete this thought exercise and go, there's a moment of creation and then there's a loss of the order under God, loss of the direct rule of God and intimacy with certain parts of his creation in the rebellion of people whose freedom he honors. Then there are spiritual powers on the earth, but in a very real way, no one knows what's going on. Like if you are Moloch, it's going to come up again here in a second. You don't know right away that, in fact, the triune God is moving on the earth with a plan. And the moment of revelation of this, again, we take for granted, but is totally insane, happens to be Egypt, happens to be following Abraham's descendants. And let's spot Abraham and say that by the time he died... He sort of could recognize the rank of the God with whom he had relationship, probably. But still, the faith that Abraham had was just faith, was just confidence that this being could produce effects inside the realm of his concerns. The thing that Abraham believed and was credited to him as righteousness is that God could help. And that's just a recognition of, wow, you must be who you say you are doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ as the professed son of God. He has the faith that we hear about in Hebrews is like, Abraham is, here's God make a promise and goes like, yes, I think that you can do that since you have already materialized fire out of the atmosphere and are constantly making yourself knowable and available. Egypt. Moses. We know the story. Let's skip the parts in the form of his birth and Nile River and killing of a servant, fleeing into the desert, and start with Moses as at the burning bush. There's this flame materializing out of the air, which in fact God does so often that he ends up being sometimes referred to as a consuming fire. <laughs> like This is very signature triune God speaking out of the bush, go, no, I can't. Go. No, I can't. Moses scents and goes, okay, well, who can I say is sending me? Right? This is this moment. This is the first moment. When a burning bush is fairly um, uh, obstinate about you going, eventually you, you're going to say what you need to to get out of there. <laughs> you're like, all right, I'm going to go. Uh, but who, you, you need to tell me you? who you are. And this, we have that classic moment where Yahweh, where the triune God says the I am. Brief word, in the ancient world, these kingdoms on the earth competing for supremacy, underneath competing high-ranking foul spirits, there's just this reality that the name of a being is always associated with not only its nature, but with its worship. Like we mentioned Moloch before, who you sacrifice children to, horrible deity, but whose name translates into sacrifice by fire. So when you're asking for the name, you're sort of also asking for leverage and understanding and to know, what do I need to do in order to appease you that will make you help me? Triune God doesn't give any of that. 
He just gives this tenseless name of, I have been who I have been, I am who I am, I will be who I will be. And like, you could just hear this sort of uh, very interstellar happen at this moment. If you have an organ nearby, hit it, because boom, this is definably the moment where we know, oh gosh, the creator God is active and moving and relational on the earth. And then he begins this move towards Egypt. The plagues of Egypt, not accidents. Uh, They actually correspond to a throwdown with the gods of the place. And they rank up. You know, we get to the plague of the flies. By the time we're at the plague of the flies, the magicians can't do anything. Well, Beelzebub just means the lord of the flies. And so you're the ancient world. You don't know whether the triune God is active. And then Moses shows up in Egypt, and then these things start to happen with which first sort of the diviners of Egypt are able to replicate, you know, in the form of water to blood and all that. But then they eventually hit this level where they can't keep going, specifically with the gnats. And the plagues keep going up rungs until they hit life and death itself in the form of the firstborn. This is the kind of announcement to the world that the ranking being, the triune god himself, is on the earth competing with a plan to restore human beings and to restore all things, in fact. This is proven by the fact that if we fast forward through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and we get to Joshua, when the spies, the wandering the deserts happened, spies finally show up in Jericho. In case you've never read the story, here's what happens. Spies are sent ahead into Jericho when Israel reaches the outskirts of the promised land. They're done duking it out in the desert, which, by the way, has not been easy. They've had multiple armed throwdowns. Spies go ahead. This woman, who happens to be a prostitute, takes them into her home. And the reason that she does is she goes, everyone has heard of you. We are all in terror because of what we heard happened in Egypt. There's this concussion going out, which is going, oh yeah, everybody knows. Everybody knows that one at a time, your God like won the arm wrestling championship against what have been so far the reigning princes on the earth. And we're all totally freaked out. We didn't even know that was allowed. We didn't know that like the being himself would get involved in creation in this way. Ah! (laughs) And then it's her recognition of that and her ask to be included that ends up allowing her and her family to share inside uh, the promise of preservation given by God. Cool moment. Okay, so a little review. The worldview of Jesus. First of all, you have a world in which God is completely present. And this is one of those things that gets lost because of where we are after modernity. When we think of like the dwelling place of God, we just imagine some distance. He's either internal, in which case he's largely preoccupied with things like motivations, or he's very far away and infinitely external, or like spiritual world kind of sits over the earthly atmosphere. Like All these things end up getting thought. The worldview of Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 no. God pervades every moment and spot inside reality, constantly willing to come to bear into relationship with his creation. 
which, by the way, he made on purpose and with pleasure, which, by the way, even when crisis happened, he found a way to stay in relationship with it. Giving the law is this, Dallas Willard calls it, a fairly decent way to live a human life, the preservation of which also creates a spot inside humanity where the presence of God can dwell, even though nothing in them at this point can survive or even would want, has no desire to live in the presence of God. This is what's happening. Epic actually speaks to reality. The faith of Abraham relates to his confidence that God can fulfill his promises to provide practical solutions in his everyday life to real problems. Sounds like an advertisement for a dishwashing soap. Which is kind of like, ha ha, exactly. You know, we have way more faith in our dishwashing soap and a much better understanding of dishwashing soap than we do of God and the fact that we think that those two could never be compared. Yes, if we did it this way, it would be objectifying God. But in fact, to go, they have the same kind of reality. And we choose them and move towards them because of their proven ability to actually provide solutions to the questions of human life that are verifiable in the world and intellectually reliable. When they say of Jesus that in him was life and that life was the light of men. Oh my goodness. Perceived familiarity. Like have anyone say that and go, what does it mean? And it goes like, well, he lets them see. And you're like, that's not bad. How about he himself had a way of living that made sense of life that people saw and it made sense of their lives. It was satisfying orientation, so much so that they went crazy when they had the opportunity to be near him. We're going to pick up the story just a little bit. We're skipping the nation of Israel and the wisdom and the prophets, and we're just going to kind of land on Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. If you follow Anson's magazine, you know that this is one of my favorite moments in the Bible. I follow Anson's and I don't know that. Well, Malachi, Israel is back from exile. Yay. Been asking for that for a long time. And they have a temple again. And Yay. they have a monarch, though he's kind of a puppet underneath Persia, which, you know. No, I don't know is the same Persia that sort of proto-Greeks are also at war with at this time. Hmm. And you have Malachi going, you guys still aren't doing it. We could talk a lot about the book. It might be the only one, but probably not, that's set up as a series of debates where like God, through the prophet Malachi, says something to the people of like, look at the shambles of your lives. And the people respond and make a defense of themselves and go, no, we don't. And then Jesus replies and sort of lays out, like, just one example. One of, like, the early, most remarkable defenses of women that takes place where he goes, okay, how about this? The fact that your men have actually just taken up the habit. It's so habitual. It's cultural of becoming interested in, like, younger and more exotic foreign women around them and divorcing their own wives to be with them. And this leaves their wives destitute. And he just goes, your faithlessness to your wives is faithlessness to God. You are betraying me when you do not actually 
support and align with and honor your covenants in these key relationships. Super awesome. We built the book. Last paragraph of this book is this like, don't worry, the day of judgment is coming. You've all wanted this. You've wanted the person who's going to come and instate uh, the dominion of God. It's going to make everywhere the place where what this trustworthy being, God, wishes is done. And then you go, huzzah, turn the page. There's usually a page that says New Testament. Turn the page again. Just pretend that you were reading this the way you're reading a history book and like, oh my gosh, crisis. This is the moment where if it were, because I always want to make this movie. I see this cinematically and it's like, people have come back together and there's kind of a temple that people are doing a really bad job of honoring it. And there's kind of a king, which we've always wanted, though not really politically speaking. And then you like, the screen goes dark and it says 400 years later, (laughs) like comes up the card and it turns and like aliens have come and killed everybody. (laughs) It's kind of what has happened where you go like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, wait a minute. There's no king. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Um, well, clearly there's like some self-rule of some kind. None of that either. Oh, Lord. Who are these guys whose military tactics are as distinct from the tactics before as are like the aliens in the movie that we would associate with? You're like, okay, there's this terrifying occupying force with a bureaucracy. What's that? You just go, all is lost. You have, you do have a temple. You're allowing this insignificant people to practice its whatever because you don't care for about 60 more years. Uh, and dear God, what has happened? Everything is lost. Then you have the last, the last Old Testament prophet who just happens to live in the New Testament in the form of John the Baptist, who is the end slate of uh, an era of the transmission of the desires and voice of God. And then Jesus is born, ensues the gospel, the actual life and work of Jesus. Wow, that was your Jesus intro music. (laughs) I just, uh, yeah, I love, you know, Padre obviously uses D-Day and Saving Private Ryan as the illustration of like, this is what is required and we have a a record of what happens and revelation of like the birth of Jesus and we have surrounding genocides and the local political structure freaking out and fleeing in the middle of a night warned by an angel like we have chaos and we have battle and insanity in the birth of Jesus and is actually it's little known fact the musical structure that conveys all of that Mm. and then Jesus lives a very normal human life. Here's a beautiful thing for many of our listeners that may or may not be noticed. But the fact that somewhere along the way, Joseph dies and Jesus becomes the man of the house, probably a lot younger than is preferable, and takes over the family business and takes care of his mom. And some version of the story is very common for a lot of people, except that Jesus is position under the father is such that he doesn't have the associated wounding doesn't feel abandoned his life is not crisis mode he's totally capable out of what's available in the father what he models is available in the father for his him to lose his dad 
and become the man of the house and nothing is lost in him and he's good and he understands that he's provided for and in fact it's not up to him all these remarkable things he lives that classic life as a tax accountant that we all know about JK I mean we say carpenter but I think that for a long time my prescription for the next 50 years of Christianity is to say basically any other menial supernormal occupation and then we'll like just return and we'll discover all this richness in him like being a stone cutter or whatever he did as a manual laborer so we're like so yeah Jesus lived his life uh, he was a bike mechanic uh, changed people's oil and then sold life insurance and then he starts walking around in the backwoods of the world saying as we said in our last podcast if you follow all of the preliminaries are taken care of the kingdom of God is now accessible to everyone. Rethink your plans for living in view of this new opportunity. And people are hearing this and going like, okay, we understand that a kingdom is the place where a person's will is executed. And so what you're saying is that there are lots of kingdoms we know because you have filled the universe with people who are capable of ruling and can rule with you. And many of them do this very poorly. And what you're saying now is that that thing that's been distant and we actually, nothing in us has been able to live inside of, you're providing a way for our transformation so that we actually get to be included in this story and live under your rule. And Abraham style, you can actually provide real practical help. Yes! Woo! I'm in! Say anybody who is not like so enchanted that they can't hear what's being said anymore. Here's like a couple stories that are maybe the most practical recent examples of what's being offered here. Our friend Tim, who's been on the podcast uh, a couple years ago, was elk hunting. And though he would conventionally hunt with his dad, he's by himself and way off having to track this animal. When he loses the trail, he asks God, which way? Holy Spirit communicates to him, tells him that way. Follows, finds this animal, like ends up with for the first time being alone with a harvested hot elk in the field, just looking at it going, what do I do now? Most people would be like, figure it out. And if you suggested to most people, like, ask God for help with that practical problem, it would be like, no, 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 no. Ask God to change how your heart feels about being in the woods with this elk and just go, actually, no, like, the kingdom of God being accessible and surrounding and in the very air around you is that you can ask for help with this real problem and that he will provide as a teacher and instructor on time solutions, which is what ended up happening. Like, as Tim tells the story, like, this is a wonderful example because it's so far down the field, but he ends up tying knots that he doesn't really know how to tie and taking out, taking this elk apart perfectly in a way that preserves everything that needs to be preserved and brings home the fullness of its vitality to his family like just through asking what next what next i've shared stories about my exercising with god and we go like oh yeah but doesn't god provide like moral instruction or something or doesn't he like which i'll get to in a second like just kind of cover your inadequacies and you go Yes, of course, definitely both those things. Also, Jesus is a teacher, and when I'm out on a run, like, the invitation of the kingdom of God is that with God, 
I could begin asking for like how to do this thing and you will actually give me practical advice and direction and people that will change the shape of this physical, spiritual life that I am inhabiting. This is what Jesus is saying. Out of this world, like, we get to this famous moment of, yes, nothing in you as it is can remain in the presence of God. And Jesus is going to walk forward without you even asking into death so that there can be a transferal of merit. He lives perfectly in your place, receives the penalty, harrows hell, resurrects, and then ascends into heaven imparting and just going like, hey, you guys, I'm going to go in heaven. Go tell everybody about this crazy thing that the lingering complications between you and God have actually been arranged for outside of you in the work of Christ. But before you run around chatting about this, wait, a power you would not believe in the form of the presence of God with you and in you and these propositions are very insufficient to describe like, we know it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come and there's going to be fire everywhere. It's just going to be like, um, okay, God is going to be with you. Gasp. The triune God before the world is actually going to be with you as counselor, comforter, strength, guide. He's going to speak to you, going to give you direction. When the Holy Spirit moves powerfully or exerts itself on a situation there's those classic things that everybody is more is really afraid of of like laughing crying shaking you know the old like people were on the ground frying like bacon well as the tim we were just talking about recently pointed out you just go like yeah well actually hang on let me raise a hand there when people are in trauma or the most intense expressions of human emotion happen in crying, laughing, and shaking. And these are the way that the body actually processes and then indwells and then passes through the most intense parts of a person's life. So when the Holy Spirit falls powerfully, what ends up happening is he makes them indwell more completely their humanity. There is a restoration of what it means to be a person in God's universe. Then comes Acts, right? We're then... (laughs) We're given a lot of uh, extremely practical examples on what it looks like (laughs) to live and pattern our lives in view of this. We'll probably add a podcast on this later. Uh, And then suddenly we're just in the present moment, totally disoriented children of modernity and post-modernity, having waited a long time in expectation of Christ's coming again. Very few of us expecting Christ to come again, that without that... Nothing in Christianity is meaningful. And just going, that's where we are. We seem to have gotten there very quickly, which is true, only it's not necessarily fast. It's just a complete picture of the world that we occupy. So it's less a situation in time than it is in space going, this is where you are. It's funny, even though this does, to a certain extent, catch us up to the present tense, all I want to do is just keep riffing back through kind of the riches of the story and go like, oh my gosh, how awesome is it that what a revelation of what Moses has seen and done that the last thing he does is give this blessing 
And then in this, and sing this song of blessing, you know, blessed are you, O Jeshurun. Can we just say how crazy it is that he climbs the mountain with God and looks into the promised land and you have the feeling of these old souls, one very old, one deepening into eternity, going up together who have walked these miles together, good friends to look at while God shows, look, here it all is. Here it all is. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. And then, you know, you have Moses, who is undiminished in vitality, get taken into the kingdom. I think God actually is the one to bury him. You end Deuteronomy with, and since Moses, no prophet has appeared like him, who Yahweh knew face to face, which again speaks to like the fact that God enjoys and desires friendship because it doesn't say Moses knew God. The thing it's pointed to is like God knew him. And then you have this longing for Jesus, like pulsating in the text of like no one has come who has known God like that. Boom. Story ends. And then we turn to like, what are we going to do now? And just go, he's coming. It's going to be a long time. But that person that you want who knows the nature of God is coming. The final thing in today's podcast is, I guess, a little bit of exhortation when we repeat that it's the responsibility of every new generation to rediscover the gospel. Like, And we could put up a little asterisk and go, each person to actually fight against the perceived familiarity that is an incredible weapon of destruction in people's lives because it's passive and it's an illusion and it leads into further enchantment. And go the way to fight against that is to constantly fight for re-familiarizing ourselves, re with the eyes of learners, exposing ourselves to the story and its characters and its actions in such a way that we stay consistently oriented to our world in the only way that's ever going to allow us to operate meaningfully over and over and practically and powerfully in it. <laughs> <laughs>